Well, let's take a few minutes and look at the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now, originally, these two books were one book in the uh, Hebrew manuscripts, and we're going to take the next couple of weeks together and dive into this great, great section of Scripture. Now, this book is really a major transition in the history of Israel. It takes us from the time of Judges into the time of Kings. Uh, Israel is going to go from loosely connected tribes of people to be a united kingdom. Uh, this book or this section is named from Samuel or named after Samuel, the primary leader of Israel as this period begins and really covers a section, a period of somewhere around 135 years that begins with the birth of Samuel and goes all the way to the last words of King David at the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, personally, I've just got to tell you, this is one of my favorite sections in all of Scripture, these two books, uh, for a lot of reasons. One is this section has some of the most vivid character development anywhere in your Bible. I mean, you're going to see some incredible characters in these two books of your Bible. You've got people like Hannah. book opens with Hannah, uh, who was a woman that displayed great dependence and a great heart of worship to her Lord. You see Samuel. Uh, is really a picture of, of leadership and the value of good, healthy, godly leadership. You're going to see Saul, uh, Israel's first king. You're going to see David, a uh, man after God's own heart. There's Jonathan, who is an incredible picture of uh, friendship with King David. And then Joab, David's mighty commander, who was just a, a rough and tough dude. Everybody was afraid of Joab, even including David. You've got Mephibosheth and Nathan and Uriah and Bathsheba and Absalom and Amnon and on and on and on. Just incredible characters that you'll see God carry out his purposes in their lives um, in these two books of the Bible. Then also, you see a beautiful picture of God's covenant promise lived out. Uh, his promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant that through this people, God is going to bless the nation of Israel to be a blessing to all the nations. When 1 Samuel begins, uh, the nation of Israel, they're in servitude to the Philistines, their arch enemy. Uh, they are serving, serving Philistia. Then by the time you get to the end of 2 Samuel, uh, Israel has become really the most powerful nation on earth. And you see God bless this nation to be a blessing. Uh, and you also see a vivid picture, by the time you get to the end of 2 Samuel, of, of a glimpse of what the Messianic kingdom is going to look like. And you see one of the most vivid pictures of the Messiah anywhere in the Bible through the life of King David. And we'll take a look at that primarily next time together. So let me just kind of set the context for you, and then we're going to dive into a couple sections of Scripture here in this um, book of First and Second Samuel. Situation in Israel, again, as 1 Samuel begins, is this. You remember, we're coming out of the period of Judges. Everything's a mess. Uh, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. So it's really a chaotic time of disobedience and uh, really compromise in the nation of Israel. You have corrupt spiritual leaders. Uh, you're introduced to a man named Eli who was serving as priest, and his two sons are serving uh, and they're corrupting the worship of God's people, and you see that going on. Uh, idolatry was rampant uh, in the nation. You're going to see some glimpses where 
the nation of Israel really saw their God at best as almost a good luck charm. As long as God's on our side, everything will turn all right, out all right, and he's more of a good luck charm to them instead of their covenant-keeping personal God. Um, the book opens with an incredible character, this woman named Hannah. Now, it's very important that in this time of great corruption, this period of the judges, the first person we see is Hannah. Her name means grace. And grace is introduced on the scene uh, to this woman, uh, Hannah, uh, this barren woman, who's crying out to God for a son. Uh, we see her prayers and her dependence upon God, and then God grants her a son, and that's Samuel. Samuel is God's gift of grace through Hannah to the nation of Israel, and, and Samuel rises up to be one of the greatest leaders Israel knows and really takes Israel from this period of corruption and the period of the judges and leads them into the period of the kings that we see in 1 Samuel. Uh, Hannah, after Samuel is born as an act of great sacrifice and worship, she takes them, or she takes him after he's weaned and really gives him to the Lord for the Lord's service for the rest of his life, dedicates her child that she had longed for and offers him back to the Lord. Um, Samuel is going to anoint uh, Israel's first king, Saul, and Israel's greatest king, uh, David. And this boy, Samuel, that is a gift of grace, is really an ultimate picture of, uh, he's a forerunner. He's a forerunner to the king that's going to come. And he mirrors John the Baptist in the New Testament, who's a forerunner of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Samuel publicly anoints the king of Israel. John the Baptist publicly declares the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And these two mirror each other greatly. Now, it's interesting. I encourage you to take some time, if you haven't, and read and really pray through chapter 2, which is called Hannah's Song. It's Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving and worship after God answers her prayer and gives her this boy, Samuel. But it's really, you could call it a song of grace. It's a picture of grace. And chapter 2, Hannah's Song, gives us uh, the direction of the rest of the two books. It gives us some themes that you're going to see lived out in the rest of First and Second Samuel. Let me just give you a few themes that you see in chapter 2 of Hannah's Song. Number one, Hannah declares God's faithful care for his people. We see that in chapter 2, verse 9, she says, He, the Lord God, guards the feet of his godly ones. We also see that God is going to carry out his covenant promise and deliver Messiah King. We see her song end with this. He will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. So she's looking and trusting and longing for this king that God is going to send. And of course, she looks to the kings that he will send in just a few years, but also to the ultimate king that he's going to send, the Messiah King. And then thirdly, this is really where we're going to camp out together for a while uh, over these two books. Is you see a principle that Hannah recognizes in her song, and it's this. The kingdom principle of the way God's economy, God's kingdom operates is this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see that lived out. You see that prayed here in Hannah's prayer. She says in verse 4, she says, the bow of the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
And there's this picture of the way God's economy operates. God will take those who exalt themselves and those who depend on their own strength and those who believe they are strong in themselves, and he will humble them. And at the same time, you see those who are humble and those who are dependent, those who are weak even, and God will take them and exalt them by his own strength and put them in a place of prominence and victory. And you see that throughout this book of First and Second Samuel together. Let me give you just some examples of that. Hannah herself is an example of that. Hannah is married to a man who has two wives. His second wife is named Penaniah, and she has she's presented as the, the wife who is able to bear children, and she exalts herself over Hannah, and she brags over Hannah. Hannah humbly comes before the Lord, and you see God exalt Hannah and grant to Hannah this son Samuel. Penaniah is never heard of again. You see Samuel, who's presented as this weak child early on as opposed to uh, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They're in this place of prominence, of leadership. But you see Samuel humbly exalted and come to a place of great leadership. You see Hophni and Phinehas, these two proud young boys who are humbled and eventually both are killed in battle on the same day. You see David and Goliath. It's a clear example of God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. Goliath, this nine foot nine soldier who knows nothing but battle, who's in his armor and he's ready to fight. And here comes David, the shepherd boy, who's the runt of his family. And eventually Goliath is humbled and David is exalted. And you see that dynamic play out over and over and over again in these books of First and Second Samuel. So from that, we see that the, the Bible says this, 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourself in humility, Peter says, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus says it this way in Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And we see that principle played out over and over again in 1st and 2nd Samuel. So here's our big truth we're gonna to chase today and even next time together, it's this. Say it again, God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. Saul and David are our primary examples of this principle lived out. So for the next couple of weeks together, we're going to chase the life of Saul, of a man who uh, is strong and mighty and is a man who ultimately is proud in heart and see how God deals with him. And then we're going to chase next time together this man, David, who presents himself as this shepherd boy, this humble one who is dependent upon the Lord and how God exalts him from a place of humility to a place of great prominence. So let's chase these two characters together. So clearly the two central characters in First and Second Samuel are King Saul and King David. Both serve as kings of Israel. Saul is Israel's first king. David serves as Israel's second king. And these two men are presented to be in opposition to one another and also opposites of one another. Saul is presented first as outwardly impressive. He is head and shoulders taller than all the other men of Israel. He's presented as this impressive outward leader. David is presented as the runt of the family, the one who is not even given any attention at all from his brothers. Saul is presented as the, book, the books open as being on the throne in this place of leadership, David is presented out in the field serving in the sheep or with the sheep. 
Saul is presented with all of his armor, and David is shown only with his sling and his trust in the Lord. And with these two, again, we see this principle lived out that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So let's take a look this week at King Saul. Chapter 8 begins with Israel demanding a king. It says this, chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, the prophet at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old. Now up to this point, Samuel had been leading well, but they're uh, ready for a king. They've been looking at all the other nations around them, and they say, Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. And the point there is that asking for a king was not in and of itself wrong. The reason they were asking for a king was the issue. They wanted a king because they believed this human ruler would ultimately be the answer. Uh, they, they had been trusting in God and found him lacking. Uh, instead of God leading, they wanted to be led through a human king. So God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. In many ways, they're rejecting me. So God gives them what they want, and he gives them this human king. We come to chapter 9, verse 16. And the Bible says, Tomorrow about this time, God says, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people in Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So God raises up this leader, Saul, and God uses him in many ways. God uses this prideful person to deliver his people from the nation of the Philistines. God's calling of Saul is much more than just about Saul. Uh, are there times that God uses sinful, prideful people to carry out his purposes? Well, of course. But as time goes on, you see that Saul's character can't quite keep up with the position he's been given. It's true in all of our lives. Our uh, character, our leadership, will never be able to outpace our character for very long. And you see that show up in the life of Saul. Saul experiences some early success. We go to chapter 11, and he has great victory over the Ammonites who were oppressing the nation of Israel. We come to chapter 13 and he defeats the Philistines. A small garrison of the Philistines were defeated. And then we come and we see that at that point, uh, the Philistines are really upset and they're ready to come against Israel again. And that's the situation we find ourselves when we come to chapter 13. The Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel, are coming against Israel. And we pick that up in chapter 13, verse 5, it says this, And the Philistines muster to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in a multitude. They came up and they encamped at Mishmash. And when the men of Israel saw this, they knew they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. Here's the situation. It doesn't look good. This mighty army of the Philistines are coming against Israel and the people know they're in trouble. Continues in verse 6, it says, The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in the cisterns. 
They begin running from these Philistines. And some Hebrews cross the fords of the Jordan. They leave the promised land and they cross the Jordan. They go back to the Transjordan. In other words, this is a really scary, desperate situation. The Philistines are coming. They're mad. They're angry. And they're ready to, to attack and bring harm against the people of Israel. Now, it's important to know that prior to this, Samuel had given some clear instructions to Saul, the new king. He said, when you go down to Gilgal and you muster the army, you're to wait there for me. He says this clearly back in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And we just look at that. Samuel, speaking on behalf of God, says, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait I will come to you and show you what you are to do. The word of the Lord through the prophet Samuel is very clear. When you muster the army there, you're not to take the role of the priest. Wait for me. I'll come down and present the offering. I'll come down and give you the instruction of what you're to do, Saul. You're to wait. Very difficult thing for leaders and for people to do. We pick it back up in verse 8. So with all this going on and the Philistines attacking with all of their might. Verse 8 says, Saul the king waited for seven days the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from it. Things start to unravel right in front of King Saul. The people start to run in fear. And Saul says, okay, in the midst of this crisis situation, Bring the burnt offering here to me, verse 9, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. In this critical, hard-pressed situation, the character of Saul begins to show itself. This is a difficult situation. He's called to lead Israel. The Philistines are coming. They're a mighty army. The people of Israel are running scared. Samuel has said, wait. You're to wait independence before you even know what you're supposed to do. You're to wait for me to come and offer the sacrifice. But here's what we see. Saul chooses to offer the sacrifice and not wait for Samuel as he was called to do. What we're going to see from this is we're going to see this big truth of God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble lived out. We'll give you five or six different big ideas that flow out of this. Here's the first one we see in the life of Saul. Big idea number one is this. Pride acts independently. Pride chooses to act independently. In this stressful situation, it is revealed where the heart of Saul really is. Who is Saul really trusting in? Is he really trusting in the word of the Lord? Is he really trusting in what God is going to say? Is he really dependent on what God has to say or is Saul trusting in himself? Well, by acting in this way, the answer is Saul clearly re reveals that his heart is trusting in his own decision, his own wisdom. Pride always acts in selfish independence. Saul believes that he knows best. Saul takes on this role of priest that was never intended to be given to him. And even in this test that Samuel sets up, as soon as he can, he acts. He's not willing to wait for the word of the Lord. He's not willing to act in dependence, and his character begins to be revealed. It shows us something about pride in our own life. 
We act independently rather than great dependence upon the Lord and His Word and His Spirit. Verse 10 continues, And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel comes. Samuel shows up. And Saul goes out to meet him and says, Samuel says to him, What have you done? And Saul says, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and when they did not, when you did not come within the appointed time, uh, he said, Now the Philistines have come down to me at Gilgal, and I have sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, verse 12, and I acted. In other words, he says, The circumstance forced my hand, and I had to do this. He's making an excuse of why he acted independently, selfishly, instead of acting dependently and trusting the Lord. So that's an example of what pride looks like in the life of Saul. Now, I want to fast forward. I want to show you another picture in the life of Saul. Chapter 15, we're going to see something else about the character of Saul. It begins in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way. So again, God is going to call Saul and the nation of Israel to deal with Amalek, this nomadic thorn in the side of Israel. He says in verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and devote destruction, devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But it may not make sense to us, and maybe may not even make complete sense to Saul at the time. God says, Saul, you're to take the nation of Israel and totally wipe out Amalek. Verse 5. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag. Now, that's not a great name, but Agag is the king of the, or the leader of the Amalekites. And, and Saul chose to spare this king and to spare, verse 9, the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs. And all that was very good, he was not willing to utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And you see something else here in the character and the heart of Saul as a leader who leads out of pride. In this, Saul knew very clearly what God had commanded him to do. But Saul chose to operate under his own authority and really to redefine obedience and what God had called him to do. So we see a second big idea here is this. Pride recognizes self as the ultimate authority. Somewhat subtle here, but Saul determines, I know what God has called me to do, but in this situation, I think I know better. Why in the world would God want me to destroy everything that's good? Why would, Saul, why would God want me to destroy this King Agag? In this moment, he may not say it this way, but he's ultimately saying and recognizing himself as the ultimate authority and not the word and the command of the Lord. Continues on, verse 13. And Samuel returns and comes to Saul. And Saul says to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. There's even a subtle shift here in the way Saul deals with Samuel. Saul now sees himself almost in the position of authority over Samuel and addressing him this way and say, Blessed be you, as if he's in the role of authority now over Samuel, the prophet of God, rather than vice versa. It's a subtle 
hint that Saul sees himself as the final authority. He says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord, verse 13. King Saul says to Samuel, I've done what you told me to do. I've done what God said, verse 14, one of the great verses of the Bible. Samuel responds and says, verse 14, and Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Oh, you obey the Lord? You did what he said? You wiped out all the livestock? Uh, what's this sheep doing here and why the oxen here? In other words, you really didn't obey what God said. Continues on. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Samuel says to Saul in verse 19. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul didn't see it as evil, but Samuel did. Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, he responds back and he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the, Amalek, the Amalekites to destruction. Here's a subtle thing about pride that is so important for us to see in ourselves. Saul is clearly operating under his own authority and has disobeyed the Lord, but he is convinced that he has obeyed. Big idea number three is this. Pride produces self-deception. He's self-deceived. He, he, in his own mind, is very comfortable with what he's done because he's so deceived by his own pride. Timothy Keller said this in a great quote, self-deception is not the worst thing you can do, but it's the means by which we do the very worst things. The sin that is most distorting in our life right now or in your life right now is the one you can't see. Saul is so distorted by his own pride, he doesn't even see what he's done as gross disobedience and rebellion to the Lord. Verse 21, but the people, he continues, Saul says, but the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel comes back and says, in a great truth, Saul comes back and says, we, we and the people, we, we brought all these sheep that were supposed to be devoted to destruction. We brought them really, and we're going to sacrifice with them. We're going to carry out this religious activity with them. Isn't that a good thing? Samuel comes back in verse 22 and says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice or ritual or ceremony. And to listen than the fat of rams. He continues and he says, for rebellion, your choice to disobey and your choice to mask it with this religious language that you're really bringing these things back to sacrifice. In your heart, Saul, is rebellion. This, this rebellion is as the sin of divination you have operated under another authority other than the word of God. That's a dangerous place to be. He says, and your presumption is as the iniquity and idolatry. You've placed yourself, Saul, in the place of God. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Give you a couple more big ideas here that come out of this passage. One big idea, number four, 
Pride substitutes external ceremony in place of God-honoring obedience. Saul convinces himself he's doing a good thing by offering this sacrifice. He puts a religious spin on it. I've done, these, I've done my religious duty, uh, Samuel. Isn't that enough? And Samuel responds and says, no, no, no. Don't confuse religious activity, ceremonial activity, with a heart that simply wants to walk in obedience and submission to the Lord. God delights in a heart that walks in obedience. Your outward activity is only to reflect an inward heart of obedience and worship and dependence upon the Lord. Saul, don't get those things confused. Big idea number five. Let's go to verse 24. He says, Saul then comes back to Samuel and says this, I have sinned. He said, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And then he says this, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Something very important from a heart of pride is this. Pride confuses regret with repentance. Sounds like Saul is offering a heart of repentance, a posture of repentance here. But if you look at it a lot closer, he confuses regret over the circumstance with a genuine heart and a posture of repentance before the Lord. It seems to be more generated by the consequences than sorrow of having offended a holy God. We'll see the difference next time when we look at the heart of David. Both men fall into sin like all of us do. Pride responds in one way. Humility responds in a completely different way. He bypasses personal responsibility by blame shifting. He says, yeah, I've done this. It's because of the people. It's because of what they did rather than own his own sin. In our lives, pride will confuse genuine repentance and substitute mere regret. Verse 25, and we'll wrap this up, says, Therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. This seems harsh. Samuel understands that it's not just a mere episode in the heart of Saul here. These episodes that we've looked at reflect the deeper character that is in the heart of King Saul, and that's a place of pride, a place of exalting himself, a place of independence, a place of saying, I'm the ultimate authority, a place of confusing repentance with regret, and all these things that we see This pride lived out in the life of King Saul. And Samuel says, because of this, I will not return. And because of this, you have forfeited this privilege and this opportunity that you could have had to serve as Israel's king and be used by God in so many ways. Here's your last big idea that we see lived out. It's this. Pride forfeits. Pride forfeits kingdom ministry impact. It's unfortunate when you look at the life of Saul as it played out in 1 Samuel, it's kind of a picture of what could have been. He had all the tools, all the ability, but the heart of pride led him to be in a place where God opposed him uh, rather than blessing him. 
and we see that big truth lived out that's basically this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what are we to do with this? Quickly, how are we to, to respond to this in our lives? Well, remember the verses that we looked at at the beginning. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? Because God is in opposition. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said it this way, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I think as we read through First and Second Samuel, it's good to ask ourselves, uh, in response to this, some, some questions about our own heart. First is this, is my posture before the Lord one of selfish independence? Do I really prefer doing my own thing? Do I really prefer trusting in my own judgment? Or in a place of continual dependence upon the Spirit of the Lord, the Word of the Lord, the people of God? Do I have a posture of selfish independence of one, or one of worshipful dependence? Secondly, do I practically see myself as the ultimate authority? That plays its way out in our lives day after day after day after day. The way we approach God's Word, the way we humble ourselves under the Word of God. Do I see myself as the authority over God's Word? Or do I place myself in the humble submission under the Word of God. Thirdly, I think it would be good to, to pray something like this, Lord, show me, Lord, reveal to me uh, through your Word, through others in my life, through whatever means necessary, but primarily the living Word of God, show me where I am self-deceived. Uh, show me where I, because of my own pride, don't even see my own independence and I don't even see my own uh, selfishness. Lord, let me say with David, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Help me to say it like Matthew, as Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. And then finally, obviously the ultimate picture of humility is the Lord Jesus himself. Our response could be to pray something like this, Lord, let the life of Jesus in me result, the spirit of Jesus in me, result in overflow in the attitude of Jesus in humility. We'll close with this, Philippians chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. God is opposed to the proud, but God gives grace to the humble.